0: appreciate uh, everyone's presence today. I hope you brought your Bibles with you and will follow along with me as we study from the Scriptures this morning. I know we've got some maybe out of town at, uh, this morning. Others will be going out of town. We're going out of town uh, for the Thanksgiving holidays. Maybe others will be coming into town. Just travel safely and I uh, hope to see you when you get back. That would be great. When I was in about the fourth grade, my mother told me it was the fourth grade, I thought it was sooner than that, but I remember her telling me, it must have been about the fourth grade. I went to the eye doctor, went to the optometrist, and uh, examined my vision, you know, did all the tests, you know, which is better, this or this. This is one, this is two, this is one, this is two, two, one, A, B, B, A. You've been through all of that, if you've been to the eye doctor and had your eyes examined. And he prescribed some glasses for me. Now I remember getting the glasses and walking out. and I have this kind of a vague memory, but looking around and thinking, "Wow, I can't. <laughs> is this the way? Is this the way that everybody sees what's going on around?" My vision is, is really pretty bad. Uh, I'm I'm off the chart. Uh, I can't see the big letter E under you know normal circumstances without corrective lenses. I asked the doctor one time, you know, you measure 2020, 2030, 2040, what, what's my number? And he said, well, we only assign a number up so far. And so, you know, I was beyond that. But anyway, uh, I, just, I just remember thinking, wow, I just can't believe how clear everything looks. My, my vision got worse and worse over the years, and the lenses on my glasses got thicker and thicker. And if you, if you can imagine young red-headed boy, freckles, pretty thick southern accent, living north of the Mason-Dixon line with big, thick glasses, you had to develop some pretty thick skin pretty fast. Or <laughs> you were just thinking well, your life was going to be miserable, which is what I, I had, I had kind of learn, learn to do. And my point in all of that is we we see clearly when, we have, when we're looking through the right lens. We see things clearly when we look through the right lens. And If you wear glasses or contacts like I wear contacts now, you you understand what that means. But what we've been trying to do on Sunday mornings lately is, is develop the right lens, or lenses, or lens through which to see the world around us. And we're looking through the eyes of Christ. We're looking through the lens of Christ. And as we look through the lens of Christ, so to speak, we can see things clearly. We see what the world actually is. We can see what's good about the world. We can see what's bad about the world, or what's right about the world, or wrong about the world, or even in our own lives. We we can see our own lives in perspective. We can see it clearly. What's right about what we're doing? What's wrong about what we're doing? Where we need to make corrections? All of that. And maybe that illustration of looking through the right lenses will help us to see the good in what we're trying to do. Well, a couple of weeks ago we talked about looking through the lens of Christ. Why Christ? Why, why do we judge all things in light of what Jesus taught? Why do we measure what's going around in the, in the world or in our own lives through the teaching of, of Christ? Why, why, why Him? After all, he lived 2,000 years ago, a long, long time ago, and we really would never suggest that... Well, we ought, we ought to evaluate things in light of what Plato taught, or Marcus Aurelius, or anybody like that. And yet, we, we choose this man, lived 2,000 years ago, AND WE SAID WE NEED TO LOOK THROUGH THE LENS OF CHRIST AND JUDGE THE WORLD AROUND US OR EVALUATE THE WORLD AROUND US. AND WHAT WE SAID WAS, WHEN YOU THINK ABOUT WHAT CHRIST SAID AND THINK ABOUT WHAT CHRIST DID, well, THEN WE BEGIN TO UNDERSTAND WHY WE HAVE CHOSEN CHRIST AS, as THE ONE THAT... Uh, AS OUR GUIDE IN, in MAKING THESE EVALUATIONS. Well, I really want to go back to that idea. And this, this particular lesson is a little bit out of order. Should have been done back in connection with that. And just a, another installment in this idea of why Christ? Why Jesus? well, Why do we choose to look through the lens of Christ at the world around us? And we're going to talk specifically about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Any discussion of the identity of Jesus, Would be incomplete without giving consideration to His resurrection from the dead. And so we talked about what Jesus said and and what He did, and that's great, but but really this, this is a major component in determining the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And any discussion of His true identity is incomplete without a discussion of His resurrection. And so we can say it this way, my thinking, my behavior are determined by Scripture because the Scriptures contain the life and teaching of Jesus. I follow Jesus because He is the Son of God. And it was His resurrection from the dead that established once and for all the fact that on the third day after He was crucified, He, he was raised from the dead. Now, there are two statements that I want to begin with this morning that illustrate the importance of the resurrection of Jesus in, you know, in, in, the, in, this, in, in this thinking. First of all, the first one is from 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19. You remember that passage. Paul is, is discussing the resurrection of the dead in general. Some in Corinth were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul reasons well, if there's no resurrection from the dead, well, then Jesus hasn't been raised. But if Jesus hasn't been raised, our faith is vain, we're still in our sins, our preaching is vain. All of these things are implied and necessary consequences if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. And the last statement he makes is this one. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, everything we believe comes crashing down. It all rests on... The resurrection of Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, we have no reason to hope in Him. And if we have no hope in Him, we are just pitiful, pitiful people, sort of the idea. Well, that just tells us how crucial the resurrection of Jesus is. And then the other statement I want to begin with is Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 where Paul is talking about the gospel and describes the gospel and the implications of the gospel and the background of the gospel and all of those things. It says that the gospel concerns his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so what is it that establishes once and for all that Jesus is the son of God, the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead? He is declared to be the son of God with power. By the resurrection from the dead. Well, what I want to do in our time today is just look at three lines of evidence that support the resurrection of Jesus. We believe that a fair-minded person who is a truth seeker who will consider the evidence with an open mind will find more than enough reason to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, now that's that's really a remarkable thing to suggest. That people believe. If someone were to come up to me or come up to you and say, hey, you know what? I know Joe over here. He was dead, but now he's alive. We'd think, no that, <laughs> no way. That just doesn't happen. You're either joking or you're, you're not quite right in your thinking in some way. or you just wouldn't believe it. And, and, but, but we're appealing to people to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, human being, lived and walked among men as other men do, Was killed and died and came back to life. And so we're asking people to believe that. That's what we believe. And we're going to try to give some evidence to support that idea. We'll begin by asking this. Would it be too difficult for God to raise the dead? Would that be too hard for God to do? Is that beyond His power to raise the dead? Well, all of us who believe in God would say, well, no, no, that's not beyond His power at all. If God can create life, God can restore life. And that wouldn't be unreasonable to reach that conclusion whatsoever. I think about the 100th Psalm and verse three, know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. God is the one who made us. He breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life And he came alive, became a living being. And so if God can make life initially, certainly he can restore life. The 95th Psalm in verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. So the Lord is our maker. Those are just two sample passages out of many, many that indicate that God has made us. And so it wouldn't be difficult at all for God to raise the dead. Now, Is there evidence that God has, in this instance, raised someone from the dead? Did He raise Jesus of Nazareth from the dead? And just going to look to three lines of evidence. The first is the evidence of the empty tomb. All four gospel accounts, and so here are four lines of testimony. All four gospel accounts tell us that on the third day after Jesus was crucified, Some women went to the tomb. They were expecting to find the body of Jesus there. They were going to prepare it, further prepare it for for burial. They weren't expecting to find the tomb empty, but when they got there, the stone had been rolled away that was covering the entrance to the tomb, as in this picture, and the tomb was empty. Matthew tells us that, Mark tells us that, Luke tells us that, John tells us that, all four Gospels agree on, on that the tomb was empty. Others then went after the women went, and they also found the tomb empty. And so how do you explain that? How do we explain that the tomb was empty, that multiple disciples went to the tomb on that day, and there was no body there? You know, there are really only a few explanations, only a few possibilities. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. You know, if I were going to try to answer that or you know somebody asked me how do you respond to that my response might be well maybe they went to the wrong tomb. No, no they didn't go to the wrong tomb. In, in Matthew chapter 27 uh, and, and uh, at, in verse 57 Jesus is being crucified. They, they take the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea takes it. He takes it to his tomb in verse 61, Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. And so Mary, who would go to the tomb on that first day of the week, was watching where Jesus had been laid. And it's not as though Jesus was buried in, in an unmarked grave, maybe a cemetery for paupers. And, and so they just they put Him in this, in this cemetery, in this graveyard. They, they bury Him. They don't mark the grave. And so, now this isn't a special tomb. It's in an unusual tomb. It's the tomb of a rich man. It's in a garden. It's not out there amongst all you know other unmarked graves. It's in a garden, and so Mary is watching that, and he's she's observing, taking notice of where the body of Jesus was laid. She's going to go back and finish the job of preparing the body, and so she wants to know exactly where the body is. You also, see it in Mark chapter. Fifteen, And as you go down through that, beginning in verse 42, reading about the burial of Jesus, it concludes in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he was laid. And so again, this is, this is an unusual burial. Here's a man who's a wealthy man. He's taking Jesus' body to his own tomb. It's a special tomb hewn out of a rock. And they're taking notice of it because they want to go back there. Did they get the wrong burial place? No, no. More than one witness sees where Jesus' body is laid. Well, maybe they have got confused about which body was Jesus' body. And so in some of these tombs you go in and, and there are multiple bodies in the tomb. You know, they sort of carve out a shelf in the rock and lay a body there, another shelf and lay a body there. And maybe you went in and there are multiple bodies and, and they got confused about where Jesus' body was. They see an empty shelf and they, well, Jesus' body is gone. I mean, maybe that's what happened. No, <laughs> no, no, that, that, that's not what happened. You see, it was a new tomb and the scripture tells us, Luke chapter 23, verse 53, that nobody had ever been laid in that tomb. And so nobody had ever been laid there. And so it's not as though it went into a tomb and there were multiple bodies. This was the only body that was there and the only body that had ever been there. And so they didn't get confused about the place or which body was Jesus' body. Well, somebody might say, well, you know, somebody else took the body. Maybe somebody else took the body when, uh, the, before the women got there. And, and so, well, who would have a motive to, keep, to take the body? Well, the, the, the Jews. Would have produced the body when the disciples began to teach that Jesus was raised from the dead. No, He's not raised from the dead. We've got the body right here. We took it and we've been keeping it. In fact, they wanted the tomb sealed so that nobody would take the body. And so in Matthew chapter 27 and in verse 62, they go to Pilate and appeal to him for a guard to guard the tomb. And so verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure along with the guard. They set a seal on the stone. So here they took double measure to make sure the the, the tomb was uninterrupted. Now they, they didn't get the wrong tomb. They didn't get confused about the body. Nobody else took the body. Well, maybe Jesus just left on his own strength. Under the power of his own strength, maybe he left the tomb. And if someone were, if I was talking to someone and they raised that, I would just ask, what strength? You know? Left under his own strength, didn't have any strength. You Think about the ordeal that Jesus went through uh, in, in the garden. His sweat becomes as great drops of blood. Uh, he's beaten, he's interrogated, a crown of thorns, the crucifixion, all, all of that, all of that left him with no strength. He certainly didn't have enough strength to roll away a stone like this by himself from the inside and, and walk away. No, that, that, that just doesn't stand the, the scrutiny of closer examination. The fact is, he had no strength because he died. In John chapter 19, the soldiers who are carrying out the execution, they, they go to the body of the, one of the thieves. They break his legs to hasten his death. They go to the body of the other thief that's crucified with Jesus. They break his legs to hasten his death. But when they come to the body of Jesus they see that he's dead already. Now these are men who are experiencing and executing people. They know death and they see Jesus and they see that he's dead already. He didn't have any strength and he didn't walk out of the tomb because he had no strength none of the possible explanation stands up to careful examination. And uh, the only explanation then for the empty tomb that stands is the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is given life, his life is restored, and as a result he exits the tomb because he's been raised from the dead here's another line of evidence that I think is convincing, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So let's think about that. Let's think a little bit about who Saul was, what's his former manner of life, and what he became, and how he became what he became, what he says about the transformation. In any controversy, the testimony of a former opponent one over to the other side is strong and convincing. Now here, here's an illustration of that. Let's say there's a Holocaust denier and uh, just says, you know, I don't, I don't believe in the extermination of the Jews during World War II. I think it's all a hoax. I think it's a ruse. I think it's something that the Jews developed in order to gain sympathy, maybe collect some money. I just don't believe it. There, there are people that, that, that think that way. And let's say here's a guy and that's what he thinks. And he says, you know what, I'm going to set out to prove that this is a hoax. And so he begins to do some reading. And he does some studying. He talks to some Holocaust survivors. He talks to some soldiers that liberated the camps. He looks at the photographic evidence. And then he decides, you know what, I'm a believer now. Now, I used to deny it. And I was as strong in my denial of that as anybody ever was. But I've looked at the evidence and now I'm a believer. You know, his testimony would be strong, wouldn't it? That, that'd be convincing testimony, in, in my judgment anyway. And that's really kind of what we have in, in Saul of Tarsus. He was an opponent of the gospel, he was as violently opposed to the gospel as anybody ever could be, and yet he becomes a promoter of the gospel, a proponent of the gospel. Let's just read a little bit about that. Look at 1 Timothy 1, where Paul, in his own words, describes his former manner of life. And I want you to, to notice what he says here. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer. What he means by that is he was saying, Jesus is not the Son of God and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, stress the word violent, (laughs) a violent aggressor. Paul Saul was not just a person who was willing to engage in debate with these Christians and try to prove them wrong. (laughs) He was a persecutor, a violent aggressor. He was willing to see them even be put to death. Let's look at another passage in which he himself describes his former way of life. Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Galatians 1, 13 and 14. You've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God. Beyond measure, I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more exceedingly zealous for my ancestral traditions. I was sold on Judaism. I was into it as deeply as you could get into it. I was advancing beyond my faster and beyond my contemporaries, and I tell you what, I tried to stamp out this Jesus movement, tried to put it to an end, to the very best of my ability. And then look at Acts chapter twenty-six. Again, the words of Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the apostle, but recorded for us and reported for us by. Luke, He says, So then I thought to myself, I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Should we let this man live or die? He says he's a Christian. He says Jesus is the Christ. Live or die? What do you think? Here's Saul's vote. He dies. He dies. I cast my vote against them. As I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Saul was not on the fence about Jesus and his followers. What well, wasn't on the fence? He, he was sold. They're blasphemers, they need to be put in prison. They need to be killed. They need to be stopped. But all of that changes. And it changes suddenly. And that's that's the key. It changes suddenly. It's not as though Saul of Tarsus said, You know, I think I'm going to find out a little bit more about this Christianity. And so he begins to read and he studies that for a little while and talks to some Christians and mulls that over. And maybe over a span of two or three years, he becomes a Christian. No, that's not the way it works. One day, he's pursuing Christians to put them in prison. The next day, the next day, he's promoting and preaching the gospel. How in the world did, did he change like that overnight? Well, I know what it says about it. And a little bit of a lengthy reading, so I'll put it up here on the screen. Acts 26 and verse 12. While so engaged in pursuing Christians to foreign cities... As I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, well, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you." And he he proceeds, he he continues. This is what Saul says about it. I was going to Damascus to persecute Christians and Jesus appeared to me and spoke to me. And so, on the spot <laughs> he becomes a believer and devotes his life to Christ. Now that's strong testimony isn't it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul uh, gives for us a little catalog, a little list of uh, witnesses of Jesus after he'd been raised and he says in verse 8, and last of all as to one untimely born he appeared to me also. And so you, here you have an opponent, a strong opponent to the gospel and the resurrection suddenly making a 180 degree turn and becoming an advocate perhaps the leading proponent for the gospel how did that occur well here's what he said I saw Jesus <laughs> raised from the dead and so I devoted myself to him because he understood the implications of that and it's Paul that writes he's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead strong evidence. And then the last point we'll make is the testimony of the disciples. And in a way, we've touched on this already in considering the disciples who found the empty tomb and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But this is a little bit broader. Uh, This this point contains a little bit more. There are some who would deny the validity of the testimony of the disciples because they say, well, you know, they're they're biased. You know, they're, they're Christians. Their faith biases is that a word? Bi- biases their, their testimony. And so they're going to maybe put a spin on their, their reporting and kind of see it in the way they want to see it or remember it in light of their faith. And it's not exactly accurate. So, and so, you know, really can't put a whole lot of stock in what they say. Well, I would say, suggest this just the opposite, in fact. It's their experience that has made them believers. <laughs> yeah. and, and so because of what they saw, They have become believers, and now they promote the gospel. Why can't a person of faith report an event accurately? I'm a believer. Does that mean that my testimony about things is not necessary? Why can't a what what prevents what precludes a person of faith from saying accurately this is what happened, and that's why I'm a believer. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 32, we find Peter standing up with the 11. It's not just Peter preaching this day, but the 11 are preaching along with him. And he makes this statement in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And so I'm a witness, but the other 11 are witnesses of the resurrected Jesus as well. In John chapter 20, this is the testimony of John the apostle. John chapter 20, verse 25. John goes to the tomb and and he he finds it empty. And so John testifies to the empty tomb. John says that Jesus is raised. In John chapter 20 and verse 28, there we find Thomas, the testimony of Thomas, who was a skeptic, an unbeliever. I'm not going to believe it until I see it with my own eyes. When he sees it, he confesses about Jesus, my Lord and my God. Mark and Luke affirmed the resurrection. Men like Stephen and Philip would have affirmed the resurrection as well. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, a passage we alluded to just a moment ago, we have a list of several who saw that Jesus raised from the dead, which is really one of the basic components of the gospel. Jesus died and was buried, raised again on the third day, and seen by these several witnesses. Cephas, the 12, 500 brethren at once, James, all the apostles, and last of all, to me. So the consistent testimony of these, especially the apostles, was that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's impressive to me that not one of them, not one of them, among the apostles recants over the span of their lifetime. (laughs) Not one of them draws back and says, no, no, maybe that, that didn't happen. The situation really is either they're telling the truth or they're lying. They're so vocal about this, so confident. And they, they say it over and over and over again that those are the only two choices. You know, if a person were to say, you know, now I might, I'm not quite sure about this. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. I could be, you know, but I think I saw Billy the other day. Well, we might allow for a mistake but if a person says I saw him and says it again and again and again and again here are choices you're either lying about it or you're telling the truth there's no middle ground they're either lying about the resurrected Jesus or they're telling the truth they are men of extraordinary high character in fact for 2000 years these men have set the standard for morality. Not just repeated the standard, they've set the standard for right and wrong conduct. All of them, I say all of them, I've got passages here, but for the sake of time, we won't go into it. Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, there Peter says, let's put aside all, uh, let me go over there and get it exactly right, put aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Peter says we got to put away deceit. you know the writings of Paul lie not one to another put away lying I'm telling you the truth I'm not lying those are statements that Paul makes repeatedly throughout his writings Revelation 21 John says all liars have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone so these men are truth tellers they emphasize the importance of telling the truth they do it repeatedly and repeatedly repeatedly they stake their lives on it and consistently they say we saw Jesus raised from the dead. And so, the strong testimony of the disciples. One, one question to be raised in connection with all of this is, what motive would they have for lying? <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they'd get rich if they lied about the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe they'd have some power, you know, a position of great power. Sometimes men lie to gain power. Uh, maybe maybe some, some fame or something like that. Maybe, maybe some opportunity would open up to them that they wouldn't have otherwise. No. In fact, they would have had a better chance to acquire these things before they became Christians. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 13, Paul says, we become the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says, I lost everything when I became a Christian. I count it but refuse. So here are three lines of evidence in support of the resurrection of Jesus. The fact is they've convinced millions of people through the years. And they're sufficient to convince any open-minded truth seeker even today. Now, just want to make a couple of observations. So, So we're talking about informing our thinking, thinking biblically about things, shaping our lives and our thinking according to Scripture. This is one component in all that. We want to listen and follow Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, look at what he said. Look at what he did. His resurrection from the dead establishes that he is the Son of God. You know, not, not everybody's going to believe that. And you may experience times in your life where you're exposed to people that, that simply do not believe it. Now, some are going to scoff and ridicule. Some consider these things nonsense and just walk away. Some simply reject it. Some just try to stay neutral. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. And some may try to present a case to the contrary. We've, we've done a little bit of that, taken up some of that. You know, if it were me, if I were an unbeliever, you know what I would say? I'd say, well, I, I think they probably just forgot where Jesus was buried. And, and, and some people knew in the beginning, but, but over time they just lost track of it and they forgot. And so the story began to be told, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and over time, that kind of caught on. And, and people began to believe it and, and then spread it, and, and, and Christianity developed. But you know, I, 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 something like that must have happened. But you know, that's not what happened. The story of the resurrection did not develop over time, it was pub- publicly announced a few days after it happened. A few days. Announcing publicly, we are witnesses of his resurrection it was preached for several years in and around the very place where it happened. In the very city where it happened they're saying we saw him raised from the dead. It's not like in in another country somewhere this legend in the place where it happened. They're publicly announcing this. In a few years time the details of his death and burial and resurrection are written down and circulated through the Empire but it was announced within a few days. And so this idea that, well, people forgot to where the tomb was and this story eventually developed, that's just not what happened. In, in conclusion, I would just say, do not allow. Think about our young people, but middle-aged and older people as well, but, but do not allow the critics, the skeptics, the unbelievers to shake your faith. Do not allow it be prepared for the challenges. At least be prepared that it will be challenged. And if difficult questions arise, don't give up your faith. Search for the answers. The answer can be found. And I I just imagine some of our young people going off to university, big university, sitting at the feet of, here's a, a teacher, charismatic great teacher, cool guy, knows his subject, and he just scoffs at the idea of resurrection. He's so smart. He can't be wrong, can he? Be be prepared. There are people who are intelligent to a degree I can only dream of. As wrong as they can be about something. Sheer intelligence and knowledge about a particular subject doesn't mean you're right about everything. Be prepared, all right? Don't let these things shake your faith. If, if questions arise, search for the answer. The answers can be found. Why do we look through the, at the world through the eyes of Jesus? Because of what he said, because of what he did, because of who he was. And what determines who he was? His resurrection validates all of these things. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to get today to come together and to worship you. And our prayer is, Father, that the things we've done today have been pleasing to you, that we've been edified by them ourselves. Increase our faith, Lord. Make our faith stronger, make it firmer. Help us be prepared when our faith is challenged. Help us to stand firm when people scoff and ridicule. Help us, Father, to stand strong when our friends walk away. Help us to know and understand why we believe what we believe. That our faith is not a blind faith, but it's grounded on very reasonable, very provable facts. And, Father, we pray that you'll help us to see this and help us to stand strong. Father, our goal is to walk in the steps of Jesus, at the world through His eyes, to make evaluations about the world around us and about our own lives through the lives of Jesus of Nazareth, because He is, in fact, your Son. Father, we pray that we will walk faithfully in those steps every day for the rest of our lives, so that when we stand before you in judgment, He'll say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask these things in His name. Amen. Amen. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian,